Luke chapter 14, beginning in the 25th verse. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father, we come before you this morning, God, asking us that you would open up this word to us, God, that we would know what it means to be your disciples, to follow after you in this world today. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I was preparing for my sermon this week, I looked at the text, and it dawned on me that they gave the youth guy a really hard saying of Jesus, right? He says to hate your family, to bear your cross, to renounce all that you have, Wow, <laughs> where do we begin? Well, the first place we might begin is um, right after church, the parking lot will actually be using it for you to truck all your possessions up here to church. So once you go home, you can decide what you need to get rid of and bring it up here and we'll just get rid of it and we'll send it out to a bunch of awesome charitable organizations that are in need of those things. I see a lot of smiles on people's faces so I think you know that I'm kind of kidding. But here's the thing though, right? I've, it's humorous, but I don't want us to lose what Jesus is really saying here. This is actually one of those clear passages from Jesus that maybe we wish was a little bit more vague, that he wasn't so sure. Oh, that's all Jesus? That's all you're asking of us? Not, not anymore? And at first glance, I think it's difficult to know what to make of Jesus' teaching on the cost of discipleship. Often, when I'm preparing to teach scripture to our students here at Christ Church, sometimes they'll sit down and try to get in their minds a little bit to think about how they might read the text and maybe some of the questions that they may, themselves might ask. So, as I was doing this, I kind of put myself in the hypothetical mind of a ninth grade boy and thought about some questions that you might ask upon hearing this text. I can imagine one boy saying something like, dude, do you think that Jesus, maybe he just ate some weird fish for lunch? Like, that sounds really hard. How are we supposed to do that? Or another boy might look at that text and say, sweet, you know what, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna show my mom that I'm totally justified in hating her for making me clean my room. That's what Jesus says, you can hate your parents, right? 
And then another one might say, well, I just got a new laptop for school. Do you think that Jesus really wants me to get rid of it? Those questions might sound a little silly, but what I like about them is it makes us struggle with the text a little bit. Sometimes I think we read scripture and it's as if the clouds open up and we can see God clearly through what we've read. There's other times that we read scripture and we reread it and we reread it and it seems like the more we read it, the more confusing that it gets. And there's other times that we read it and it kind of feels a little bit like a punch in the gut. Like we read that and kind of have to really let what we're reading settle a bit. And I think this passage, it's kind of like those latter two responses. So how should we understand this passage, this call that Jesus makes on our lives? As a preacher, I think that there are two temptations for me that I want to steer clear of. You can let me know afterwards if you think I've done this or not. Um, The first temptation, I think, in preaching on this passage would be to minimize the call that Jesus is making of dumbing down our discipleship, if you will. And I think the second temptation is, is a little different. The second temptation would be to talk about discipleship as if it's a purely human endeavor, that it's a show of human might and will that is nothing more than a thinly veiled works righteousness. What I'm interested in helping us here is Jesus' call afresh, difficult as it may be. I remember one of my Bible professors in seminary talking to us about how you read a hard passage, giving us some tips in our study. He said, well, the first place to start is actually if you read some of the verses that precede it and some of the verses that follow it, if you look at the larger context, that can give you some clues about how to understand something that's difficult. He said you can actually draw this out, that you can look for other clues throughout the book and even throughout the whole Bible that can make a passage that's hard to understand become clearer, that it's always better to interpret a passage in light of what's clear and not try to puzzle around and and make conjectures about something that doesn't seem as clear. So with this in mind, I want us to consider first the broader context of Luke 14 as well as our lectionary passage in Deuteronomy 30, because I think it's going to help us shed some light on Jesus' call to discipleship. This morning, we're going to ask ourselves two questions. The first question I want to ask is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is Jesus truly getting at in our gospel text? And secondly, the question I want to ask after that is, why should we follow Jesus? I think that's a harder question to get at, but we have to be clear about what Jesus is asking us first. I think the answer that we'll find is that in following Jesus, that means bearing the cross and sacrificing those things that might distract us from God so that in turn, we can find new life in God afresh. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. I wanna talk a little bit first about what does it mean to follow Jesus? One way that you can divide our gospel text, Luke chapter 14, 25 through 33 up, is by looking at the three different demands, like I mentioned on the front end. According to verse 26, we must hate our families. According to verse 27, we have to bear our own cross. And finally, in verse 33, we need to renounce all that we have. That's what Jesus is asking of us. 
But what's really interesting is that these requirements, they actually correspond to some details in a passage that precedes this in chapter 14, Jesus' parable of the great banquet. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but I'm going to kind of paraphrase it, if you will, summarize the passage. Some of you, it may be a familiar passage. It's, it's in other gospels, but some of you might need a refresher. So here's kind of how this parable goes. Um, it starts with a great man, a man of a lot of wealth, a man that can throw a party. So what does he do? He says, you know what, I'm going to throw a great party, and I'm going to invite a large number of guests. So he sends out some invitations, kind of, kind of like save the dates, if you will. Um, something to know about the ancient world. Table fellowship in the ancient world, to be invited to someone's table to share a meal or to, to be a guest at a banquet, it actually was equivalent to your status in society. Someone would never ever think to invite someone who was below them on society for fear of being associated with them. So you can think about the types of people that a rich man who can throw a big party would invite and would want to associate with. So as the preparations are being completed, he sends out his servants, he says, all right, servants, go and let our guests know that they're free to come and join us and we'll celebrate together. So the man is waiting, and then all of a sudden, he sees on the horizon some of his servants coming back. And they've kind of got these like sheepish looks on their face. And they proceed to come and tell the master that all of his guests that he's invited, they can't make it. They've got this whole list of excuses about why they can't make it, but they're not going to be able to show up. So the master, not wanting to be embarrassed himself, says, you know what, well, if these guys can't join me for my party, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out and I'm going to invite the lame, the crippled, the sick, the blind, those who may not have a party otherwise, and you know what, they can come and, and dine with me and we can celebrate. And that's what ends up happening. So here's the tie-in with our gospel text this morning. The tie-in is actually in the excuses that are made in this parable. I think they correspond to some of what Jesus is talking about in his call of discipleship. In verse 18 of chapter 14, one of the people, they say that they just purchased the field and they need to look at it. Now, if we slow down for a second, that's kind of an odd excuse. Why would you ever purchase a field and not have seen it first? Right? That's kind of weird. That's not very good business, if you will. So, okay, that's maybe not a very good excuse. In verse 19, another person says, hey, I've bought 10 oxen, and I need to go examine them. Again, a similar sort of thing, right? If you're making a big investment in something like 10 oxen, surely you would have checked it out. That's not a very good excuse. It's kind of like buying a used car, right? If you find something on Craigslist, or something like that, you don't just buy the first thing that you see, right? You go and you contact the seller, and then you meet at a neutral site. You might maybe bring a mechanic friend along to check out the car, give it a test drive, check the car facts, right? You want to make sure that if you're going to put down some money on this, that it's worth doing. So again, this is a strange excuse to make. And finally, in verse 20, another man says, you know what? I can't come. Just got married. Well, that excuse sounds a little bit more legitimate to me, but, you know. <laughs> the excuses that are being made for not attending the banquet, I think they hit at Jesus' insistence that his disciples not allow familial relationships or possessions to get in the way of the call to follow him. 
to fall victim to the same sort of excuses could result in our missing out on being disciples of Jesus as well if we're not careful. And maybe you're like me, and you can think of a whole host of excuses that will lessen the impact of Jesus' words to us in this passage. Like I said, the I just got married one seems to work pretty well for me. But maybe it's something else. Maybe it's I'm kind of too busy in my career at the moment, or I've got young kids and, you know, it's, it's chaotic in our household. Or maybe for some of my students, it's I got a hard slate of classes, I'm applying for college, it's just like a really busy season. But I think the issue that Jesus wants to confront us with is this question. Are we willing to give up what we think is important in order to do what God actually says is important? Let me say that again. Are we willing to give up what we think is important to do what God actually says is important. Martin Martin Luther once said this, and I think it's really spot on and helpful. He says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And I think oftentimes, I think about my own self, if I look at my heart and my life, often it might look like I'm following other gods rather than Jesus. I think the problem here lies in the fact that we think we know better than Jesus how we should be living our lives. We may not say this out loud, but the knowledge that we should follow Jesus is rarely backed up by the desires of our heart if we take an honest look. And when our desires are out of whack, when they're all confused, it's easy for something else then to stand in the place of Jesus. Um, In thinking about how to illustrate this, I I thought about some memories that I had from my childhood. One thing I've learned about living in Dallas is that you guys like to eat, and you have plenty of fine eating establishments. But as I look around, there's one that I notice is missing. You don't have a Sizzler restaurant. I looked this up actually on Google. The closest Sizzler restaurant is about 700 miles away in Gallup, New Mexico. So some of you who've maybe grown up on the coast, you might be a little more familiar with Sizzler. For those of you who are Dallasites, a Sizzler, imagine this, it's kind of like an upscale golden corral meets like a value steakhouse. If you can imagine those two things coming together, that's kind of what a Sizzler's like. And so the best value at the Sizzler It's their all-you-can-eat salad bar. Um, As a child, I was the oldest of four, so for my parents to feed us when we went out, they were looking for that kind of a value. So more often than not, if we had a special occasion, where would we go? We'd go to Sizzler. And also, as a child, you know, I grew up in the school system where they taught us about the food pyramid, right, and about how you create a balanced diet. But what's really interesting is as soon as I walked through those Sizzler doors, All of that knowledge, it went like out the window, right? Once you place that plate in my hand, there was one place and one place only that I was going. I was gonna go to the Sizzler kids cart. They're really strategic marketing, right? It's a salad bar for a child, it's tall, you kinda have to reach up and and grab stuff out, but the, the kids cart, oh, it's right at your level, you can just go up and plop your plate down and you can fill it up with things like dino chicken nuggets and fries and mac and cheese and mashed potatoes and gravy and spaghetti and jello and it's right next to the soft serve ice cream machine, right? It's, it's every kid's dream. And I just couldn't help myself, right? 
I didn't mind eating a salad if my parents put it on my plate at the house, but you know what? It wasn't what I desired. My parents, you know, I'd come back to the table and they'd look at my plate and be like, Taylor, you gotta go put some like green stuff on there. That's, that's looking a little too fried and yellowy. So I'd go and you know, I'd indulge them and eat something a little bit healthier. But you know what, I would never go get a salad first. I always got distracted by what my heart desired, even if I knew it wasn't the best thing for me. And it's a silly illustration, right? But I think that's actually true of the way that we often live. And over time, I began to trust my parents in like nutritional science, right, about how we should eat. And then, you know what, over time, my desires changed. If I made a plate like that today, I'd probably feel a little bit ashamed of myself knowing that there's a better way that I can eat that's better for my long-term health and all of that. So Jesus says that following him is like a person who is considering building a tower. Wouldn't that person sit down and make sure that they had enough money to finish the venture? Um, I imagine there's a, there are a few of you out there who are fans of Fixer Upper. Do you know that show? The, the couple down in Waco that go in and they buy these houses and they do these extravagant renovations, right? And it's really cool to watch that process play out. So can you imagine watching an episode of Fixer Upper where Chip and Joanna Gaines, all of a sudden in the middle of the episode, they run out of money and they have to abandon their project? Like, we can't imagine, right? That, first of all, it'd be kind of embarrassing, right? They're, they're supposed to be the experts. They should know this stuff. And it just wouldn't be good television. Well, I think that when we're thinking about following Jesus, we have to ask if we truly intend to follow God for the long haul. I think we can call ourselves disciples, but we have to ask ourselves, are there things that hold us back, that distract us from truly following Jesus? I think part of the problem is often we don't trust that the difficult way that Jesus calls us to sacrifice for, we don't think it's worth it that we're conflicted about giving up these things so that we can follow him. In chapter nine of Luke's gospel, verses 24 and 25, Jesus says this, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I think that's at the core of what Jesus is talking about when he gives this call to discipleship. And you know what, I actually want us to sit a little bit in the discomfort of this call. I think that in America, and especially in a place like Texas, we can forget that being a Christian, it's not often an advantageous social decision to make. It hasn't been for much of world history, and there are still many places across the world where being a follower of Jesus today is costly, even dangerous in some circumstances. If you live in a Muslim country, for instance, becoming a Christian means most likely that you'll be cut off by your family, by the wider community around you, that nobody will want to have anything to do with you. And so your only refuge in that instance would be to lean upon others who have heard the call of Jesus, the church community, that might be the only place you might find any fellowship and help. So Luke tells us that Jesus drew great crowds. So it seems appropriate that Jesus would set them straight on what following him would really mean. I think verse 27 gets it best. 
Being a disciple, it's all about bearing one's own cross and coming after him, of following Jesus. Now, we must remember that bearing one's own cross, it had a slightly different meaning at this time when Jesus was speaking. Remember, he hasn't died on the cross yet. He hasn't gone and been crucified and then subsequently resurrected, right? So what did that phrase mean to his audience? Well, there was another use at the time. The popular use of the cross is that it was this gruesome tool of capital punishment often used by the Roman governments. They would usually take people who were trying to rebel against Rome and put them up on the cross and kill them in this terrible public way and make examples kind of as a way of saying, hey, don't mess with us or you're going to end up like that guy over there hanging on that cross. Do you want to do that? I don't think so. So when we think about Jesus talking about bearing one's own cross, there's a seriousness that comes with it. And taking the way of the cross, that's actually the very road that Jesus himself walks as he approaches Jerusalem. If Jesus was killed in this manner, why should his followers expect to be treated any differently? But as we all know, right, the cross is not the end of the story for Jesus. The way of the cross is ultimately a way that leads to life for Jesus. Jesus' resurrection life is what he passes on to his followers, life not only for eternity, but also life now. And for me, that's why we follow Jesus. And as we turn in the sermon, we're looking at why should we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus even in this hard, difficult way so that we can find life. Yes, this call is stark, but we also have to remember what Jesus' journey to the cross it means for us. The cross is how God reconciles us to himself. Now, we've been spending some time at Christ Church studying some stuff from Bonhoeffer, right? We spent the summer looking at his book, um, Life Together, about Christian community. Another one of Bonhoeffer's famous works is a book by the name of The Cost of Discipleship, or just Discipleship, as it was called in the original German title. And as I was preparing this week, I pulled my copy out, and I thought, what would Bonhoeffer have to say to us about this? And he says some striking things. This is what he says about the way of the cross. He says, the cross is not the terrible end of a pious, happy life. It's st- instead, it stands at the beginning of community with Jesus Christ. Whenever Christ calls us, his call leads us to death. So the choice to follow Jesus and to be his disciple, now it's reframed a little bit, right? When Jesus says that we should hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even our very lives, he's not talking about being angry at these people, but rather he's saying that we should never put them above following Jesus. This is also why Jesus says that we need to renounce our possessions, that anything that might get in the way of our allegiance to God alone, it must be called into question. It must be sacrificed. It must be put to death. And Jesus believes that we will do this because it will take us into a closer relationship with God. Going back to Bonhoeffer again, he says this, bearing the cross does not bring misery and despair. Rather, it provides refreshment and peace for our souls. It is our greatest joy. Here we are no longer laden with self-made laws and burdens, but with the yoke of him who knows us and who himself goes with us under the same yoke. 
Under his yoke, we are assured of his nearness and communion. It is he himself whom disciples find then when they take up their cross. When we take up our cross, we find Jesus and life itself. When we bear the cross of Christ, we are unburdened from those things that separate us from God, and we find a new relationship with God, a relationship that is actually life-giving in truth. Now, Jesus is serious about counting the cost of following him, but he is the one that makes that way for us. And also, what Jesus does is he then he gathers a people to himself for that very purpose of following him. Now, at its root, discipleship is about trusting God and following him wherever he would take us because that is the way of life. We see this in our Deuteronomy passage as well. Here's a very famous speech of Moses extolling Israel to choose life in God. Moses is talking to a people, we have to remember, that have already been redeemed by God. The law wasn't a requirement for their salvation. God delivers them from captivity in Egypt before he gives them the law. That's really important to remember. So thus, Israel obeys God because of his love for them that he's already shown. They don't do it to earn his love. I think we get that mixed up sometimes when we read the Old Testament. That this is the gospel at work even in the Old Testament. Obedience to the law, that marks these people as God's covenant people, those who are in a relationship with him. They receive this word because they know God. God has spoken to him. God says, you are my people. Hear these words. Hear the way to live. God has given them life already, but, he must, but they must choose to trust him, to trust that life and to live in obedience. Choosing death, right, would be not trusting in God's ways of finding a life outside of what God's talking about. Um, this passage is a special passage to me because this is a passage that I share with our high school seniors every year. The past couple years, I've been running a class for our high school seniors in the second semester to prepare them for the challenges of going out either to college or into the working world. And this is the passage that I go to to start us with. Why do I do this? I don't do this to scare them, but to remind them that God is near to them and that when they love God and when they walk with him and when they obey his commandments, that's how they're gonna find life. To ignore God and to stray from his ways is to choose death in a way. It's a way contrary to the life that God wants us to give. And even if this goes against the grain of what they see on their campuses, God is offering them life through a relationship with him and those who follow him. Finally, in closing, I think it must be said that Moses is speaking to a whole community. He's not just speaking to one individual person. When he says, choose life, he's telling the entire community of Israel, Israel, choose life. And the church is now the community that has given up the world but gained everything in return as we follow Jesus together. Again, coming back to Bonhoeffer for the last time, I think he just totally nails this. This is what he says. Everyone enters discipleship alone, but no one remains alone in discipleship. Those who dare to become single individuals trusting in the word are given the church community. They find themselves again in a visible community of faith, which replaces a hundredfold what they lost. Isn't that wonderful? That when we've given up the world for Jesus, what we're given as well, aside from life, 
We're given the church community, right? That's why we gather and worship every Sunday, and we also hopefully gather in other places with other believers so that we continue to follow Jesus on this path of discipleship. So if you're not in a small group or something like that, join up. You need to have a group of believers who who are in your life, who you can walk hand in hand in this path of discipleship together. Or maybe another thing that you might do is you might participate in the upcoming Wednesday night study that we're having at church. Father Paul and some of our clergy team, they're gonna be looking at what Jesus says about discipleship. We're gonna spend a number of weeks together as a Christian community looking at discipleship, asking the question, how do we follow Jesus in the way that he's asking? I think it's a hard call, but the God that we serve, he's a gracious God, he's a merciful God. He knows that we can't do this alone. So not only has he given us his Holy Spirit to guide us, but he's also given us the Christian community. And so the church, we must stand together and we must show the world what it truly means to live, what life is really about. The church needs to be a people that are so devoted to God that they will do anything to follow him, putting aside any short-term pleasure to make God's love more fully known in the world. Kind of the last image that I wanna leave us with is actually an image that Father Paul talked about last week. Last week he talked about the Acts 2 community, right? And this is a community that was marked by people who devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to Eucharist, and to prayer. And do you know what happened? The world around saw what they were doing. They saw their life together. They saw the way they were living their lives and they marveled. They saw people who renounced their possessions to provide for those in need. And they also saw how many, many more were being added to their new family, the family of God. As we think about this discipleship task together, it's my continual prayer that as we follow Jesus by bearing the cross and sacrificing what distracts us from God, that in turn, we might find a life of discipleship in this community, that we would walk together this path following in the footsteps of Jesus, the one who makes that way for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.